Welcome inside the lab at Formula 4 Media. I am Bob McGee, and today I'm speaking with Mr. Joe Pellegrini, an Ivy League-educated investment banker and former seven-year NFL player for the New York Jets and Atlanta Falcons. He's currently managing director for Bad Charlotte, North Carolina office, where he has worked for the last decade after previous positions with Lehman Brothers and Robertson Stevens. His M&A work with the within the industry has focused on numerous branded apparel and retail companies, including VF Corp, Under Armour, Oakley, Pure Fishing, and Easton. Uh, good morning, Joe. Good to have you inside the lab today. And uh, maybe as we get started, you could tell our listeners a little bit about your journey through Harvard and Columbia and playing days in the NFL and how it led to investment banking and perhaps anything you learned as an NFL player that's helped you in your current role. Thanks, Bob. Good morning. It's good to be here. Well, I, I, in terms of my background, I, I, I would say I've been very, very fortunate to be able to convert my athletic career and passion for athletics and outdoors into an investment banking career. And, it, and some of it's been... Uh, through passion, some of it, I guess, a little bit of luck. But when I, I started, when I retired from football and decided to become a banker, I was lucky in the sense that I, my first job was in the early 80s with a firm called Robertson Stevens, and I had two very good mentors, uh, the founder of the firm, Sandy Robertson and Mike McCaffrey, the CEO. And they counseled me to become an expert in a industry, to become the captain of that industry and to leverage my passion and knowledge in the category. So they asked me to build a consumer practice. Uh, by luck, I happen to have a, a few early assignments in the outdoor lifestyle industry, such as the North Face and Vans. And these companies back then were very, very small. It's hard to believe that North Face was a $25 million company in the late 80s. And the overall industry itself back then was in its infancy. Generally speaking, it was companies that were founded by either former athletes or outdoor enthusiasts, and they try to take their passion and their expertise, business skills uh, to build a business in the category. Uh, but what really drove the what I call the the rapid and significant growth over the last several decades of the industry is a confluence of a couple of forces. One was these pioneers for certain had a vision, and you got to start with people that are have a clear vision of how to build something that can be exciting. But the growing affluence of the United States and the migration of a big part of our population to the West Coast put people in closer proximity to some of these outdoor activities, uh, sporting goods in general, the general sporting goods industry, the traditional sports, we know, continue to grow. But it was really the demise of, or at least the downturn of the aerospace industry in the 80s really was a catalyst to gel all these consumer forces together. Because at that time, a lot of these aerospace engineers that had product and materials expertise or design expertise were laid off. And they, you know, to look seek employment, they found their way into the outdoor industry, the sporting goods industry. Uh, not surprising that many of the companies that we know today, not all, but many of them are located on the West Coast, Colorado, where the aerospace industry was domained, and many of these people came into the industry and not only revolutionized existing categories, but created new categories from scratch, such as mountain biking, you know, lightweight materials, titaniums, alloys, composites, even even apparel uh, like core, uh, gore technology, and other you know fabrications that could be lighter weight, more durable, better performance feature, better functionality, and actually the sophistication of sourcing in Asia, because West Coast was close to Asia, is a source in Asia to lower the price, 
the construction cost and you know drive down prices while improving functionality and performance. And the confluence of all that created this huge shift in consumer dollar spending from traditional apparel and traditional activities to these new activities. And people became passionate about their like if you're a cyclist today, people spend upwards to ten dollars to $12,000 for their bicycle and, and spend many thousands more on their apparel. So that, that's how the industry got started. I happened to be in the right place at the right time. It was very exciting to watch uh, this unfold. And since then, my, my partners and I have been involved with over 300 transactions, helping to provide you know, financing to, to the category. Very interesting, Joe. Uh, and next, I wanted to ask you that in July, the Wall Street Journal reported a potential record $4.8 trillion in M&A activity in 2018, with the first seven months of this year up 57%. You know, you know, what are the factors fueling this activity? Is it tax code changes or other things? Well, look, uh, not all the 4.8 is in the outdoor and sporting goods segment, but, I, uh, uh, you know, they're seeing that, that these sectors are seeing their fair share of an increase in activity. Certainly the tax code and other policies do impact M&A activities, but I think the overall health in the M&A in the category continues to be robust. And there, there are a lot of factors for that. The most important one is what I spoke about earlier is the fact that more consumers are gravitating to these activities. You've got now got digital uh, know-how and digital technology that's further revolutionizing these categories and bringing them uh, into the digital world. But there are consolidators out there that continue to consolidate like the VFs and the impluses of the world that are successful in executing. And then there are other conglomerates, I should say, that are looking to streamline their portfolios, you know, like Vista Outdoors and even Nike and Adidas of the world have divested non-core assets to stay focused on what they believe will deliver the, the most value for the, the creation for shareholders. And what would you say are the biggest reasons for M&A activity within the footwear apparel and sporting industry? Is it technology acquisition, expansion of customer base with an existing geographic base, expansion, diversification of product and services, or is it something else? Um, and are there any unique factors that drive M&A activity within the sports industry that maybe don't apply to other, you know, to high tech or other sectors? Well, I, look, there are a lot of factors. I mean, some of it I, I spoke about. Certainly the innovation, new materials, new comfort features, new ways of providing the consumer with better product, better styling, better functionality. Bionic is a good example of that, a company that kind of marries all those pieces together and provides a great value proposition for the consumer. And actually providing great digital expertise to be able to communicate and sell product directly to the consumer. There's also just the industry factors. I mean, e-commerce has changed the game in terms of how product gets delivered and, and recognized by the consumer. So many of these companies are trying to leverage their uh, digital or try to build their digital know-how. So there's been obviously movement within portfolios. I think VF has, you know, has publicly come out and said they're, they're looking to, you know, to do a spin of their business to focus the, the more growth-orientated businesses in the outdoor and, act, and what I call performance activity under one roof. And, and they're carefully looking at their entire portfolio and how they might divide and split their business to, to, to maintain focus. So all of this is adding to the M&A activity, both in and out, as companies think about how to build their portfolio and how they look towards streamlining their portfolio. So you mentioned Vionic. Could you talk a little bit about the Vionic Calaris deal and about Implus and maybe even about Yeti? Well, I, I, I can talk uh, generally. If I, I mean, the, the, the Vionic transaction obviously is in the public domain. And this is, a, again, an example of real spirited and management and entrepreneurs that have done a terrific job building uh, not only a brand, but an organization that has a unique culture. We see this all the time in the industry of companies 
companies that rapidly take an entrepreneurial spirit and marry that with a unique value proposition of product assortment. And Bionic is a great example of that. That, that, that is, has taken advantage of their unique core technology and comfort patterns wrapped around that a great merchandising strategy. They've, they've got very talented people that they've put together in, in a north, north of the San Francisco and have created a unique culture that unlike any foot, uh, many football companies that I know, they've got more of a technology kind of spirited sort of culture. And as a result, there are strategic buyers out there that viewed Bionic as a very attractive target, one that even though it was only $200 million in sales, they saw the business as being something that could potentially someday be you know north of a billion dollars in sales. With respect to Implus, look, they've seen they've seen an unmet need at retail to marry more innovation and better merchandising and customer service for the retailer to professionalize the accessory category, the performance accessory category, whether it be outdoor or general sporting goods. And they've acquired many brands that were very good companies and very good brands, but then, you know, kind of put a few steroids to professionalize the organization and inject even more innovation in the products. And as a result, the consumer has seen a better assortment from which to choose. And the retailer now has a, prof- a pro- more professionalized vendor to help manage those categories. And, and Implus has done a, a terrific job of that. And, and Yeti is really a, a talk about the reinvention. There are many companies like Under Armour, Prana, and, and, and others that have reinvented old categories. And you know, Yeti's the epitome of that and taking a category cooler that was maybe a $14 to $24 item and turned that into a $300 plus item by, by putting great technology and products, material styling to provide products that were more like family heirlooms and, and more aspirational. So, and, and, and successfully drawing the female consumer to their brand. It started as a predominantly dominant male brand, but today I would say it's fairly balanced between both females and males. So kudos to how they've developed positioning of the brand and their products. Finally, today, yep. finally, Joe, I just want to ask you, so if a company within the uh, apparel for and sporting good industries is contemplating a move into M&A as we head into 2019, are there any key measures, steps they should consider? Is there a key period of the, of the fiscal year to enter the M&A market, uh, say the end of the fiscal year? Do you expect more M&A activity within the segment in 2019? Why or why not? And what will be the key factors in driving any increased activity? Well, I think the, the first off, I, I I think you know timing is it can be important because we do have cycles in you know in the in the markets, and you got to obviously be mindful of that. But but I, I think a, a single bit best advice is is to always keep your eye on the ball operational wise. You know, today in today's markets, we don't really see any softening in the markets over the long term. There may be downward periods over time. Overall, the sector has a nice tailwind to the category. So there are what I call family-run business entrepreneurs that are building wonderful companies. You know, our advice to them is is continue to stay focused on building your organization, continue to stay focused on building your digital expertise, because that's uh, buyers are very mindful of how brand has been able to position itself and attract and retain customers online. The financial reporting element is always important because if a target's going to come in, uh, if a target's going to go to market and look to get acquired, being able to accurately and efficiently answer tough questions around their both historical and projected performance is going to be critical. So being prepared from from a financial reporting is always very, very important. But our advice is is that you don't try to time the market. You, what you do is stay focused on building a durable brand and a durable business, and that will get recognized over time. There are buyers that are going to be investors, private equity investors, that are always looking for 
great franchises, great people, great management teams, and great concepts that are well executed. And what we do as bankers is, you know, there's no no two companies look alike. I mean, I know there, there's always talk about comparing one company with another, but even in the athletic apparel space, I would tell you that a Lululemon and an Under Armour, although operate maybe the same category. Uh, one could say uh, dramatically different cultures and different approaches and both work, both are successful. So a good banker, a good advisor should be able to help you position a company appropriately and be able to put the spotlight on the wealth creating opportunity and customize that story to the right audience, whether it be a private equity investor or a strategic buyer. And that, that's that's why I think the banking community continues to, to do well in helping to uh, either unite equity deals or help companies find good homes, either with private equity or strategic buyers. Well, thanks for all your insights today, Joe. I've been speaking with Mr. Joe Pellegrini, Managing Director for Baird in Charlotte, North Carolina, and you've been listening to Inside the Lab at Formula 4 Media. This is Bob McGee.